Uh, we, are, we are in a series uh, right now called Taste It. We are challenging us as a, as, a, as a family to read through the Bible in 90 days. We're at a point in that series where this is how I want to start. Do you ever feel like you get the short end of the stick? So I never know what to make by uncomfortable chuckles. I don't know if that's a, yeah, <laughs> I hear you, brother. Or if that's a, <laughs> you can't say that in church. Or if that's a, <laughs> nobody look at me. Or do you feel like sometimes you get the short end of the stick? I mean, do you even, do you, that's a phrase that communicates, I think, right? For, for a lot of us, uh, we feel like sometimes we just get the short end. And, and it's interesting, I don't know if you know where that phrase comes from. I, I, I didn't know. I wanted to look it up a little bit and find the definition of it. Here's the official answer. They don't know. They don't know exactly where uh, that came from, the etymology of that. There's no definitive history, but, but they have some guesses. Uh, one is that it might be a corruption of the phrase uh, wrong end of the stick, which, which harkens back to uh, days when you'd have walking sticks, and, it, and there'd be a, an end that always goes to the ground and the top end, and if you grabbed that bottom end of the stick by mistake, that was kind of a gross end because it was on the ground and all that kind of stuff. So it could be that. Or some say that it might be um, a 15th century phrase, kind of a, a medieval times phrase of, of a corruption of the wrong end, which really originates from sword fighting. So that if you were at the wrong end of the sword, <laughs> you know, the pointy end, <laughs> you, that would, you were the loser, you were uh, hurt, you were damaged, you were killed, versus being on the right end of the sword, which was the hilt, and that's where the victor Stood. Make sense? And so some say that's where that phrase comes from, is getting the pointy end of the sword. Uh, some think that maybe it's not those things, but it really comes from the world of um, drawing straws. So like if there was a dangerous or undesirable task to be done, somebody would, would put some sticks or some straws or some pieces of string or whatever in their hand, and everyone would pick, and whoever picked the shortest one got stuck doing the cruddy job. So, so we don't know where this phrase exactly came from, but when we say, man, sometimes I feel like I get the short end of the stick, we know what we mean. What we know we mean is nobody wants the short end of the stick, Right? Nobody wants that, which is already an encouraging way to open any kind of a sermon when we start talking about getting the short end. Here's what I want to do this morning, because we are in, if you're reading with us through the 90 days, your, your reading is taking you into Jeremiah right now. A guy by the name of Jeremiah, it's going to take you into a book called Lamentations after that, and then a book called Ezekiel. And I want to introduce you to just two more of these guys that we call prophets. Prophets were these, 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 these people, these, these men back in the day. For, for whatever reason, God decided he wasn't going to speak directly to everybody, to the nation of Israel, his people. He wasn't even going to speak to, to the kings and the leaders. He was going to pick an individual, a prophet. He was going to speak to that individual, and then that individual would speak to the people, would speak to the king, would speak to the leaders, would speak to everybody for God. Sounds like a cool job, right? Not so much. Because often the message that God had was something like, stop sinning or die, which is not a super fun thing you want to communicate. I mean, imagine if this were your job somehow. You got up this morning, God's like, hey, you're going to go uh, down to Eastwood Town Center, and all I want you to tell everybody is if you keep sinning, you're going to die. And so you're thinking, wait, it, like, can we just send an email or maybe I put a flyer out and put it on the car windows or something? He said, no, I want you to tell him. And so this was the job of the prophets, right? He gave them these messages. They were supposed to give it to the people, say exactly what God said. And, I, and it wasn't necessarily a, a, a pretty 
convenient, easy job. Their lives as prophets were not easy. Sometimes it seems like they got the short end of the stick in the deal. And yet, these are real people. They didn't live some charmed life. So I want to introduce you to two of them this morning. Just give you a taste of these guys' lives. If, if you have uh, the North Point app, open that, please. Uh, there's some fill-ins, verses are there. If you don't have the North Point app or you've sworn off technology for Lent, uh, uh, good luck. And um, uh, grab a Bible in front of you. We'll put some of the verses on the screen behind me as well. But I want you to see these, uh, these, these individuals because these were real people. Sometimes we forget that these characters uh, that we read about in the Bible... These are just real dudes doing real things and trying to really figure it out. And, and, and there's, a, there's a history behind it and a people and family and friends and connections and all, all this kind of stuff. So this is just a taste of the life of a guy named Jeremiah. By the way, whenever we say the word Jeremiah, I know for a number of you there is a song that comes immediately to mind. No, we're better than that, okay? I'm just, saying, I'm just saying, we're better than that, friends, right? We can let it. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry. You're not missing a thing. It's not a problem. I'm just speaking to some of us, maybe a little uh, uh, more seasoned in life. They can kind of, okay, we're better. Okay, here we are. Jeremiah, chapter 1. This is, this is the story. It says, the words of Jeremiah, Maya, some, son of Hilkiah, the priest of Anarath, the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Amnon, king of Judah. And though, through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the 5th month, the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile, and you're already bored because there's all those names and places that you don't care about, all right? Here's the point. There's lots of kings in Jeremiah. Okay, boom. Jeremiah chapter 1, 4 says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations, which sounds like a great way to start a Monday morning. God showing up and going, Jeremiah, before you even were a glimmer in your parents' eye, I had you picked out because you're going to be a prophet. Jeremiah says, Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. The Lord said to me, Don't say I'm too young. You're going to go everywhere I send you and do whatever I command you. Don't be afraid of them, for I'm with you and I'll rescue you, declares the Lord. And the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I've put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow and build and to plant. And again, that sounds really cool. Right? Like, oh, this is a cool charge. I'm going to be like the destroyer and stuff. I'm like, I'm in charge. This is great. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see a branch of an almond tree, I replied. And the Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The, Lord of the, the word of the Lord came to me a second time. What do you see? He says, I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It's tilting toward us from the north. And the Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. Yay. All right? East Lansing, no sweat. It's like, it's like a scalding pot of burning oil is coming at you. You're all going to die. Don't bother running. All right? This is Jeremiah's message. Like it's this message of, of destruction and in the, in the, in the nation of Israel is in a time in their life where, where God said, hey, if you obey me, I'll be your God. You're going to have all these good things. And if you choose not to obey me, then destruction's a coming. And they're like, yeah, we're cool. We're not going to obey you. And this happened over and over again. And God keeps injecting into the situation and goes, hey, let me help you out there. And they're like, no, no, we got it. Thanks. We're going to just do our own thing. You're cool, but we don't need you. And so then they would cry and then he'd come and it was this crazy cycle. And, and it's like the most patient parent on the planet gets tired of it over time. And God says, no, you, you have to learn. 
And so there is this season coming where Jerusalem, where the Israelites are going to be uh, destroyed. And this is Jeremiah's Happy Tuesday message. Disaster is coming. Tell everybody. Chapter 18 in Jeremiah. Again, just give you a taste of this, this kid's life. Jeremiah, uh, he has these, these, these um, moments where God speaks to him, tells him these things that he's supposed to say, and sometimes God does it through uh, pictures and through stuff going on in, in his world around him. And in chapter 18, it says this. It says, this is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I'll give you my message. That's a guy who makes pots, in case you were wondering. Uh, so I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot that he was shaping... Uh, from the clay was marred in his hands, and so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, uh, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in, the hand, in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I, I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and doesn't obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now therefore say to my people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look. I'm preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. That's never good. If God is devising a plan against you because of their disobedience, I'm devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, just so we're clear, this is God telling Jeremiah, hey, I have this disaster plan for them, and if they repent, then we, we can change the tide here. But let me just tell you what they're going to say, Jeremiah. Let me give you a little clue into what's going to happen because you're going to go to them and you're going to tell them this. You're going to say, hey, East Lansing, you're all going to die of burning oil. You should stop doing the things that you're doing. And here's what they're going to tell you. East Lansing's going to look at you. I don't have anything against East Lansing. By the way, it's just, it's just what popped in my head. So East Lansing is going to look at you and they're going to say this, verse 12. But they will reply, it's no use. We're going to continue with our own plans. We're going to all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. So what a horrible what a horrible thing. How insane is this? Like God is saying, hey, quit it. And, and God's telling Jeremiah, you just go tell them that message. But let me just tell you, Jeremiah, they're going to tell you, uh, no, <laughs> I'm doing, we're going to do what we want to do. We're just continuing the evilness of our own stubborn hearts. And, and so then Jeremiah is continuing to, to, to spread this, this message of doom and gloom and the people aren't really digging it, and so they're a little tired of Jeremiah, and they figure that the simple, simplest thing to do would just be throw him in jail. So they do. They grab him, they throw him in jail, and that goes on for a little while, and then in, that's chapter 37, but when we get to chapter 38, they decide jail's not good enough for him. So this is what they do in verse 6, and, and my hunch is it's probably because Jeremiah kept saying this stuff from jail <laughs> to like that poor guard that had to keep walking by or the other inmates or whatever. I don't know how this works. But this is what happens in, in 38.6. It says uh, they retired of that. And so the king uh, came and it said they took Jeremiah and they put him into the cistern of Malchijah and the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. And they lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. So, so prison's not good enough. We're going to take this guy who won't shut up because God's told him to send this message, and we're already tired of him. The message is like, you're all going to die. And they stuck him in a well, that was no water, but like muddy. And so the picture I have is Jeremiah just sunk down into this mud, like, I don't know, up to his waist, up to his chest, up to his neck or something. Like, he's just stuck in a pit in the middle of Israel. 
declaring this message of you're all going to die. This seems like a fun job, doesn't it? <laughs> Almost seems like Jeremiah got the short end of the stick. See, Jeremiah's life was all about destruction. I don't know that he had many friends. <laughs> it's hard to hang out with a person like that. I don't think he had any family. I don't think, I don't think he had kids. I don't think he had kids. And he was kind of tight with God, but not exactly happy. I mean, it's kind of cool, I guess, that God talks to you and tells you to go tell everyone they're going to die. I guess that's, but I can't imagine Jeremiah's life being happy. Matter of fact, the nickname for the rest of time for Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. No big surprise there, right? John, John MacArthur is a pastor, a theologian. He says this about Jeremiah's resume on LinkedIn. It would say he was threatened, tried for his life, put in stocks, forced to flee from King Jehoiakim, publicly humiliated by a false prophet, prophet and thrown into a pit. Sometimes you get the short end of the stick. Jeremiah seems like he got the short end of the stick. And it's interesting because then Jeremiah goes on to write the next book in our Bible, and it's called Lamentations. Doesn't that sound, that Lamentations is some fun devotional reading if you just need to be brought down low. <laughs> if you just really want to get in, I don't know if this is true. I hear this sometimes, a uh, certain gender, I won't, you just choose. But um, they, they just feel like they need a good cry. I don't know, dudes, is that dude? Whatever, it doesn't matter. And, and, and Lamentations is like a good cry. The book, Lamentations, the Hebrew title, literally comes from the first couple words in chapter 1. And the first, it's the word, How? And it's, it's not like how, like, oh, how does that work? Or, oh, how do you say that? Because that's like a question. That's okay. It's, it's the word how, like the, from the pit of your, of your gut when things are falling down uh, around you and you're like, how did we get to this point? Right? It's the how that comes from a, a person who has overdrawn their bank account. Their money is gone, and yet the bills continue to come. And no matter how much you work, you cannot get ahead. And so on Sunday night at midnight, you're in your room, and you're crying out, How did I get here? Right? It's the kid that had everything going for them in life in terms of scholarship and future and whatever, and somehow ended up on an opioid route and has now found themselves in a place that they never thought they'd find themselves in. They're at literally the, 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 the bottom point of their life, and they cry out going, how did this happen? That word how, that's the word we see in verse one of Lamentations where it says, how deserted lies the city once so full of people. The book of Lamentations is written about Jerusalem and how it got conquered in 586 BC. I know that doesn't mean a ton to us. Like we're like, uh. but for them, this was a, this was huge. Jerusalem was the center of who they were as a people. The Jews, the Israelites, this is a thing. That's where they went to worship. It's where their temple was built. It's where God met with them, and it's gone. And they're like, how did we get here? What happened? Second half of verse one says, "How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations? How she's like a widow now." This word "how" in chapter two, it uses the word "how." It says, "How the Lord has covered his daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger." How did we move from a people that God said, you're my people and I'm your God and I took you out of Egypt and I, and I, and I led you with like fire and cloud and I fed you with like meat and potatoes from the sky and I gave you water from rocks and I kept you safe from the other nations and I gave you this land. How did we get to this point where all we are is under God's anger? Lamentations 
original title from the Hebrew was this word how. And then over time, the rabbis began calling it loud cries or laments, and that's where we get our title, Lamentations. It's interesting because this book is read still by Jews on special occasions, which does not seem like the book you want read on special occasions. Like, hey, it's your birthday. Let's read Lamentations. (laughs) Bitterly she weeps at night. I mean, it's just, it's a sad book. And Jeremiah wrote this because of his life. This is almost like, I'd submit it is like opening someone's private journal where they've written the hardest moments of their world. Except for uh, Jeremiah, it seems like a lot of his moments were the hardest moments in the world. The key word in this book of Lamentations is weep. And that's what Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, wrote about was weep. Jeremiah, one prophet, I just give a taste of his life. It was all about destruction, and frankly, it seems like maybe he got the short end. There's another prophet, maybe a bookend prophet is kind of how I think of it, named Ezekiel, and it's the next book, and I think it's great that we put them together in our Bible like that, because Ezekiel, also a prophet, God said, hey, I'm going to give you some messages, and you're going to give them to the the people, to the kings, whoever I tell you to tell them to, and then he goes, okay, and Ezekiel is doing the same job, But it seems like he's got a different experience. Ezekiel chapter 1 says this, says, In my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. What a great way to start. I saw visions of God. On the fifth month, it was in the fifth year, the king, uh, exile of King Jehoiachin, and the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kebar River, in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. Doesn't that just sound different? There the hand of the Lord was on him. Like God's hand picked Ezekiel for this Role. And the rest of chapter 1 goes on to describe this insane experience that Ezekiel has with God in this vision. And visions were like, were complex because, because they, they, it's like a dream, but you don't know if it's real. And these guys were like in it, but it wasn't really happening. It just, it's crazy. And the rest of chapter 1 and 2 of Ezekiel goes on to describe this, this vision that he has. And it gets wild. Read it. When you get bored with me, just start reading. It's insane what, what, what Ezekiel sees, but what's crazy and it's really like God just just exploded his glory it's like it's like uh, God just went here I am and Ezekiel saw the not even the fullness of it probably just a part of it and it blew him away like God just said look at who I am because I got a job for you this amazing powerful glory are you with me omnipotent god just begins to unravel the universe in front of ezekiel so ezekiel can just get a taste of what god's like that's ezekiel's experience chapter uh, verse 28 it's in chapter one it says this was the appearance uh, it says uh, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day so was the radiance around ezekiel This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down as I heard uh, the voice of one speaking. Like, what else would you do? If God just ripped open and showed himself, and Ezekiel's like, ah, and he just went down on the ground. He had this amazing experience, transformation for Ezekiel in his life, in his world, for his coming message. And it's interesting because the, the, the theme of the book of Ezekiel and the theme of a lot of Ezekiel's prophecies is this concept of the glory of God. 
Yes, there's still this thing where these, these, these Israelites are now been taken captive and they're not in the place they're supposed to be and they got a ruling nation that's not the best nation on the planet that's, that's sort of telling them what to do. But God is glory. God has amazing glory. And there's hope and there's stuff that's coming. In, in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, this, this is a, a pivotal experience that just sort of gives you the taste, just a taste of what Ezekiel was all about. In chapter 37, verse 1, it says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. This is getting weird, but just hang with me. It's, it's so crazy. He led me back and forth among the bones, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, does that, does that phrase sound familiar? See, it's interesting because son of man uh, is is Jesus' favorite phrase to use of himself. When Jesus was on the planet, he called himself over and over again, Son of Man, Son of Man, the Son of Man says, Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. It's so interesting that God calls Ezekiel that. It doesn't mean that Jesus and Ezekiel are the same. They're two totally different people, but there is just this sense of intimacy and expectation and closeness and development and role and responsibility that's just so interesting that God would call Ezekiel Son of Man. So he says in verse 3, he asks him, Son of Man, can these bones live? And I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. That's, that's a funny answer. You got, you got to chuckle. Because, because imagine being put in that situation. I, I was trying to like put myself in there. Like, what would I say? Like, God just like blew his glory. And I was like, ah! And then he's like, ah! And he's like, hey, you're going to have these messages. And some time goes by. And he's like, hey, come here. I want to show you something. And you're like, cool. And so you go. And he's like, hey, check out the bones. And you're like, this is going to get weird. And so you're looking at bones. And you're like, so, okay, cool. And so God says, can they live? Like Morgan Freeman, if he were God, right? And... And I go, what would I say? I'd be, I'd be like, no, God, that's ridiculous. They're dead. Wait, is that the right answer? Did I pass? No, I mean, I mean, yes, they can. I don't know. And Ezekiel's so smart. And I, he says, hey, God, you alone know. And I think he says it that way with this sense of anticipation that God might do something here. I think he says, well, God, you alone know. He's just... Like he took me all the way up here. There's bones. Like something's going on. It's like God, man. You know, ah, right. So he's anticipating something's happening. And so he says, "You alone know." And then, and then he said to me, "God said to me, prophesy to the bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones: I will make breath enter you, and you'll come to life. And I'll attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. And I'll put breath in you, and you'll come to life, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying to the bones, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. You know that old song, the knee bone connected to. You know this song. I've been told that song comes directly from this story. I think that that's true. It comes directly from here. It says, I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And God said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy to the man, and say that, well, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath entered them, and they came to life, and they stood upon their feet, a vast army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we're cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to the people, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring forth from them. I'll bring you back from the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I've done it. 
declares the Lord. Now, don't go like too weird with this. It's not like a zombie thing. It's not literal people coming out of graves. It says God giving this message. And this is the theme of Ezekiel, this, this glory of God coupled with this message of extreme hope. He took Ezekiel up there, showed him these bones that came together, got all weird, he answered some questions, and he goes, tell Israel that there's hope. I know they feel like there's no hope, like they are dried up, washed out, pile of brittle bones, but I'm telling you, Ezekiel, I got this plan for them. I'm going to bring them back. They're going to come back to land. They're going to be my people. They're going to have this amazing thing in a little while. They just got to hang for a little longer. And so, and so Ezekiel gets to express this message of extreme hope. Jeremiah, his message is, you're all going to die, there's no hope. What a job. Ezekiel, his message is, I know you don't like where you're at, and I know it stinks, and I know you, you kind of deserve to be there, but you know God's got this amazing plan for you to bring you back. He's still your God. He hasn't left you. Seems like Jeremiah got the short end of the stick. Yeah? I don't want that. I'll take, I mean, I don't want to be a prophet, period, but I'll take this one over here. At least I get to tell people, hang in there. It gets better, right? So we have this interesting experience between two prophets. Jeremiah is all about destruction, pain, captivity. He was treated poorly by nearly everybody. It's not a job any of us want. Sometimes being a Christ follower means getting the short end of the stick. I'm bothered by pastors or preachers or books or any other communication tool that says as Christ followers, it's just always daisies and chocolate. Because it's not. Sometimes Christ follower, we get a short end of the stick. But even in the midst of all the junk, there's always a glimmer of hope. And even Jeremiah, who was all about destruction and pain and and, and doom, there's this little verse buried in chapter 29, verse 11 of Jeremiah, where God says, I know the plans I have for you to prosper and give you a future. There's this glimmer of hope in the midst of all of it, and yet, frankly, super hard to hear through all the pain. So it's just buried there, and Jeremiah continues to talk about destruction and what's coming and doom. Meanwhile, Ezekiel, while not an easy life, did have a nice, somewhat comfortable living. He had his own property, it turns out. He has a house, a wife stuff. And he regularly meets with God where God shows Ezekiel his glory. Ezekiel actually got to see the God billboards that we always ask for. You know what I mean by the God billboard? Like you have this decision to make in life, and you're just like, God, just give me a sign. Right? God, just show me the billboard. It's like that billboard at 10 p.m. at night when you round that curve, and it's like lit up like, like, like the middle of the afternoon, and you're blinded for five seconds because it's so bright and so obvious. Ezekiel saw those. Ezekiel didn't seem to get the short end of the stick. Two God followers, we, we, we might call them Christ followers today, living at the same time in the world with two very different existences. That's the point of the prophets. Nobody promised life would be easy or pleasant as Christ followers, but it is better only because in Christ there is a promise of better. Sometimes we get the short end of the stick, sometimes not. Either way, Jesus is still there. He hurts when we hurt. Rejoices when we rejoice, cries when we cry, and celebrates when we celebrate. There's this great story, and this is kind of just where I want to start moving us towards the end here in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel's another prophet. We'll, we'll actually get to him next week, and we're not there yet. But, but I just, chapter 3 of that, there's a story there 
that I think so uh, uh, explains this concept in such a powerful way. Daniel chapter 3, this is the story, is that uh, Daniel had three friends, and uh, they were in uh, Babylon, a nation they didn't want to be, in a place that was not very fun, eating things they probably shouldn't have been eating, and hanging with people and doing things. It was just very difficult for them as Jews. And, and, and the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, says one day, he says, you know, this is a great idea. I think everybody should worship me, because guess that's what kings do. And so he says, the way that that'll roll is I'll just make this gigantic statue, and, uh, and then and when, I, when I play the, the trumpets and stuff, you just bow down and, and worship it, and, and it's all cool. And so he does that, and everybody in the nation uh, goes down on a knee and starts worshiping the this, this statue, except for these three guys. They have na- their names, they have good Babylonian names at this point, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these, these three guys. And they're like, yeah, we can't do that. Like, we, we're only supposed to worship God, and that's where we're drawing the line. That's, all, that's it, man. Uh, everything else, I don't know, but we're not worshiping. And so the king gets pretty ticked off, and he says, hey, bring them to me. And, you, and so the soldiers grab the guys, and they bring them in, and, and, and the king says, hey, I, I like you guys. Like, you know, you're funny and stuff. I like you guys, and so I'll give you another chance. Uh, we'll play the trumpet again tomorrow, and when it happens, just, like, go, just go down. Just, just bow down and worship, because if not, i gotta, I got to kill you. And the way we're going to kill you, we're going to throw you into this giant furnace. you just burn up. It'll be great. You'll, you'll not like it at all. <laughs> And, and, so, and so the guys are like, yeah, well, that's, that's not going to work for us. And he's like, hey, I don't know if this part's true. This is me imagining into this that the king just goes, hey, just, just like fake it. Just, just go down on a knee like everybody else. I mean, it's like you have to like say words or nothing. Just, just be like, just, just do that. Like just, just kind of. And this is what they say. These three guys as they're facing the king and potential death by fire. <laughs> they sing King Nebuchadnezzar. We don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, dot, dot, dot. We'll just let that story hang, and you can read it later. It's there. Because I just want to cap on that phrase. But even if he does not, it doesn't shake what we're going to do. Our God can save us. He can transform. He can change. He can do whatever he wants to do. But even if he doesn't, we're still not crossing that line. Men, are you with me? Like, I'm just looking for my men for a minute. My boys, are you? Like, that's a phrase that resonates with us, right? That's like, that's like something you'd hear from, like, uh, William Wallace or something. Like a Braveheart kind of a thing, right? It's like, even if not, makes sense? Like, that should spark something deep in us. It's a bugle call to charge the hill. It's a phrase that speaks rebellion to the devil and to the world and to fear. Like, God can do this, but even if he doesn't, it will not change how I feel. That's a powerful, powerful statement. Even if not, even if Jesus doesn't give me that job, even if Jesus doesn't heal my spouse, Even if Jesus doesn't vindicate me, I won't quit. I won't back down. I will never give up on Jesus. I will still choose to follow and trust him in the mess because I know he has better planned for me. It may not be now. It may not be here. Because frankly, I might end up with the short end of the stick here. But even if not, I won't do it. There's this, this quote that hangs on my wall, uh, actually on my computer monitor. It's a postie, and uh, I try to keep it in my head. It's from a guy named Thomas Kempis. He was a great um, uh, religious thinker back in the day, and he said this. He said, when Jesus is near, all is well, and nothing is difficult. When he's absent, all is hard. Amen. If you guys would stand, we'll sing, and we'll be done.